support Black Clock Audio Tales by going to the Patreon link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. This month, the month of May, we are doing uh, the space operas Skylark of Space and Skylark 3 by E.E. Smith. Thank you again for listening. And for Radio Free Oleander, we'll be talking about Star Wars, or the Star Wars trilogy, or the Star Wars series, or Star Wars as a phenomena this May. Check out our show notes for where to find us, where to subscribe, where to find out, where to find us on social media, where to suggest stuff, where to say, hey, I was listening to Dracula, and there's a page missing that happened, and I fixed it. Black Clock Audio Tales, the month of May. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Porpoise Men of Dasor. How long do you figure it's going to take us to get there, Mart? Seaton asked from a corner, where he was bending over his apparatus table. About three days at this acceleration, I set it at what I thought the safe maximum for the girls. Should we increase it? Probably not. Three days isn't bad. Anyway, to save even one day, we'd have to more than double the acceleration, and none of us could do anything, so we'd better let it ride. How are you making it, Peg? I'm getting used to weighing a ton now. My knees buckled only once this morning from my forgetting to watch them when I tried to walk. Don't let me interfere, though. If I'm slowing us down, I'll go to bed and stay there. It hardly pays, said Seaton. We can use the time to good advantage. Look here, Mart. I've been looking over this stuff I got out of their ship, and here's something I know you'll eat up. They refer to it as a chart, but it's three-dimensional and almost incredible. I can't say that I understand it, but I get an awful kick out of looking at it. I've been studying it a couple of hours and haven't started yet. I haven't found our solar system, the green one, or their own. It's too heavy to move around now because of the acceleration we're using. Come on over here and give it a look. The chart was a strip of some parchment-like material or film, apparently miles in length, wound upon reels at each end of the machine. One section of the film was always under the viewing mechanism, an optical system, projecting an undistorted image into a visiplate somewhat similar to their own. And at the touch of a lever, a small atomic motor turned the reels and moved the film through the projector. It was not an ordinary star chart. It was three-dimensional, ultra-stereoscopic. The eye did not perceive a flat surface, but beheld an actual extremely narrow wedge of space as seen from the center of the galaxy. Each of the closer stars was seen in its true position in space and in its true perspective, and each was clearly identified by number. In the background were faint stars and nebulous masses of light, too distant to be resolved into separate stars, a true representation of the actual sky. As both men stared fascinated into the visiplate, Seaton touched the lever, and they apparently traveled directly along the center line of that ever-widening wedge. As they proceeded, 
the nearer stars grew brighter and larger, soon becoming suns, with their planets and then the satellites of the planets, plainly visible, and finally passing out of the picture behind the observers. The fainter stars became bright, grew into suns and solar systems, and were passed in turn. The chart unrolled, and the nebulous masses of light were approached, became composed of faint stars, which developed, as had the others, and were passed. Finally, when the picture filled the entire visiplate, they arrived at the outermost edge of the galaxy. No more stars were visible. They saw empty space stretching for inconceivably vast distances before them. But beyond that indescribable and incomprehensible vacuum, they saw faint lenticular bodies of light, which were also named, and which each man knew to be other galaxies, charted and named by the almost unlimited power of the Fenachrome astronomers, but not as yet explored. As the magic scroll unrolled still farther, they found themselves back in the center of the galaxy, starting outward in the wedge adjacent to the one which they had just traversed. Seaton cut off the motor and wiped his forehead. "'Wouldn't that break you off at the ankles, Mart? Did you ever conceive the possibility of such a thing?' "'It would, and I did not. There are literally miles and miles of film in each of those reels, and I see that there is a magazine full of reels in the cabinet. There must be an index or a master chart. Yes, there's a book in this slot here, said Seaton. But we don't know any of their names or numbers. Wait a minute. How did he report our Earth on that torpedo? Planet number three of Sun six four something, Pilarone, wasn't it? I'll get the record. Six four seven three Pilarone, it was. Pilarone, let's see. Seaton studied the index volume. Real twenty, scene fifty one. I'd translate it. They found the real, and scene fifty one did indeed show that section of space in which our solar system is. Seaton stopped the chart when star six four seven three was at its closest range, and there was our sun with its nine planets and their many satellites accurately shown and correctly described. They know their stuff, all right. You've got to hand it to them. I've been straightening out that brain record, cutting out the hazy stretches and getting his knowledge straightened out so we can use it. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff in the record you can get. Suppose that you can figure out exactly where he comes from with his dope and with his brain record? Certainly. I may be able to get more complete information upon the green system than the Osnomians have, which will be very useful indeed. You are right. I am intensely interested in this material, and if you do not care particularly about studying it any more at this time, I believe that I should begin to study it now. Hop to it. I am going to study that record some more. No human brain can take it all. I am afraid, especially all at once, but I'm going to kind of peck around the edges and get me some dope that I want pretty badly. We got a lot of stuff from that wampus. About sixty hours out, Dorothy, who had been observing the planet through number six visiplate, called Seaton away from the fenachrome brain record upon which he was still concentrating. 
Come here a minute, Dickie. Haven't you got that knowledge all packed away in your skull yet? I'll say I haven't. That bird's brain would make a dozen of mine, and it was loaded until the scuppers were awash. I'm just nibbling around the edges yet. I've always heard that the capacity of even the human brain is almost infinite. Isn't that true? asked Margaret. Maybe it is, if the knowledge were built up gradually over generations. I think maybe I can get most of this stuff into my peanut brain, so I can use it. But it's going to be an awful job. Is their brain really as far ahead of ours as I gathered from what I saw of it? asked Crane. It sure is, replied Seaton, as far as knowledge and intelligence are concerned, but they have nothing else in common with us. They don't belong to the genus Homo at all, really. Instead of having a common ancestor with the anthropoids, as they say we had, they evolved from a genus which combined the worst traits of the cat tribe and the carnivorous lizards, the most savage and bloodthirsty branches of the animal kingdom, and instead of getting better as they went along, they got worse, in that respect at least, but they sure do know something. When you get a month or so to spare, you want to put on this harness and grab his knowledge. Be very careful to steer clear of his mental traits and so on. Then, when we get back to the earth, we'll simply tear it apart and rebuild it. You'll know what I mean when you get this stuff transplanted into your own skull. But to cut out the lecture, what's on your mind, Dotty Dimple? This planet Martin picked out is all wet, literally. The visibility is fine, very few clouds, but this whole half of it is solid ocean. If there are any islands, even, they're mighty small. All four looked into the receiver. With the great magnification employed, the planet almost filled the visiplate. There were a few fleecy wisps of cloud, but the entire surface upon which they gazed was one sheet of the now familiar deep and glorious blue peculiar to the waters of that cuperous solar system, with no markings whatever. What did you make of it, Mart? That's water, all right. Copper sulfate solution, just like the Osnomian and Irvanian oceans, and nothing else visible. How big would an island have to be for us to see it from here? So much depends upon the contour and nature of the island, that it is hard to say. If it were low and heavily covered with their green-blue vegetation, we might not be able to see even a rather large one, whereas if it were hilly and bare, we could probably see one only a few miles in diameter. Well, one good thing anyway, we're approaching it from the central sun, almost in line with their own sun, so it's daylight all over it. As it turns and we get closer, we'll see what we can see, Better take turns watching it, hadn't we? asked Seaton. It was decided, and while the Skylark was still some distance away, several small islands became visible, and the period of rotation of the planet was determined to be in the neighborhood of fifty hours. Margaret, then at the controls, picked out the largest island visible and directed the bar toward it. As they dropped down close to their objective, they found that the air was of the same composition as that of Osnome, but had a pressure of 78 centimeters of mercury, and that the surface gravity of the planet 
was ninety-five hundredths that of the earth. Fine business, exalted Seaton. Just about like home. But I don't see much of any place to land without getting wet, do you? Those reflectors are probably solar generators, and they cover the whole island except for that lagoon right under us. The island, perhaps ten miles long and half that in width, was entirely covered with great parabolic reflectors, arranged so closely together that little could be seen between them. Each reflector apparently focused upon an object in the center, a helix, which seemed to writhe luridly in that flaming focus, glowing with nacreous opalescent green light. "'Well, nothing much to see there. Let's go down,' remarked Seaton, as he shot the skylark over the edge of the island and down to the surface of the water. But here again nothing was to be seen of the land itself. The wall was one vertical plate of seamless metal, supporting huge metal guides, between which floated metal pontoons. From each of these gigantic metal floats, metal girders and trusses went through slots in the wall into the darkness of the interior. Close scrutiny revealed that the large floats were rising steadily, although very slowly, while smaller floats bobbed up and down upon each passing wave. "'Solar generators, tide motors, and wave motors all at once,' ejaculated Seaton. "'Some power plant, folks. I'm going to take a look at that if I have to drill in with a ray.' They circumnavigated the island without revealing any door or other opening. The entire thirty miles was one stupendous battery of generators. Back at the starting point, the Skylark hopped over the structure and down to the surface of the small central lagoon previously noticed. Close to the water, it was seen that there was plenty of room for the vessel to move about beneath the roof of the reflectors, and that the island was one solid stand of tide motors. At one end of the lagoon was an open metal structure, the only building visible, and Seaton brought the space cruiser up to it and through the huge opening. For door there was none. The interior of the room was lighted by long tubular lights running around in front of the walls, which were veritable switchboards. Row after row, and tier upon tier stood the instruments, plainly electrical meters of enormous capacity and equally plainly in full operation. But no wiring or bus bar could be seen. Before each row of instruments there was a narrow walk, with steps leading down into the water of the lagoon. Every part of the great room was plainly visible. Not a living being was even watching that vast instrument board. "'What do you make of it, Dick?' asked Crane slowly. "'No wiring, tight-beam transmission. The fenachrome do it, with two matched frequency-separable units. Millions and millions of kilowatts there, if I'm any judge. Absolutely automatic, too, or else—' Seaton's voice died away. "'Or else what?' asked Dorothy. "'Just a hunch. I wouldn't wonder if—' "'Hold it, Dicky. Remember, I had to put you to bed after that last hunch you had.' "'Here it is, anyway, Mart.' What would be the logical line of evolution when the planet has become so old that all the land has been eroded to a level below that of the ocean? 
You picked us out an old one, all right, so old that there's no land left. Would a highly civilized people revert to fish? That seems like a backward move to me, but what other answer is possible? Probably not to true fishes, although they might easily develop some fish-like traits. I do not believe, however, that they would go back to gills or to cold blood. What are you two saying? interrupted Margaret. Do you mean to say that you think fish live here instead of people, and that fish did all this? as she waved her hand at the complicated machinery about them. Not fish exactly, no, Crane paused in thought, merely a people who have adjusted themselves to their environment through conscious or natural selection. We had a talk about this very thing in our first trip, shortly after I met you, remember? I commented on the fact that there must be life throughout the universe, much of it that we could not understand and you replied that there would be no reason to suppose them awful, because incomprehensible. That may be the case here. Well, I'm going to find out, declared Seaton, as he appeared with a box full of coils, tubes, and other apparatus. How? asked Dorothy curiously. Fix me up a detector, and follow up one of those beams. Find its frequency and direction. First, you know, then pick it up outside and follow it to where it is going. It'll go through anything, of course, but I can trap off enough of it to follow it, even if it's tight enough to choke itself, said Seaton. That's one thing I got from that brain record. He worked deftly and rapidly, and soon was rewarded by a flaring crimson color in his detector, when it was located in one certain position in front of one of the meters. Noting the bearing on the great circles, he then moved the Skylark along that exact line, over the reflectors, and out beyond the island, where he allowed the vessel to settle directly downwards. Now, folks, if I've done this just right, we'll get a red flash directly. As he spoke, the detector again burst into crimson light, and he set the bar into the line and applied a little power keeping the light at its reddest, while the other three looked on in fascinated interest. "'That beam is on something that's moving, Mart. Can't take my eyes off it for a second, or I'll lose it entirely. See where we're going, will you?' "'We're about to strike the water,' replied Crane quietly. "'The water?' exclaimed Margaret. "'Fair enough. Why not?' "'Oh, that's right. I forgot that the Skylark is as good a submarine as she is an airship. Crane pointed number six visiplate directly into the line of flight and started into the dark water. How deep are we, Mart? asked Seaton after a time. Only about a hundred feet, and we do not seem to be getting any deeper. That's good. Afraid this beam might be going to a station on the other side of the planet, through the ground. If so, We'd have to go back and trace another. We can follow it any distance under water, but not through rock. Need a light? Not unless we go deeper. For two hours, Satan held the detector upon that tight beam of energy, traveling at a hundred miles an hour, the highest speed he could use, and still hold the beam. I'd like to be up above watching us, 
I'll bet we're making the water boil behind us, remarked Dorothy. Yes, we're kicking up quite a wake, I guess. It sure takes power to drive this old can through this wetness. Slow down, commanded Crane. I see a submarine ahead. I thought it might be a whale at first, but it is a boat, and it is exactly what we're aiming for. You are constantly swinging with it. Keep it exactly in the line. Okay. Seaton reduced the power and swung the visiplate over in front of him, whereupon the detector lamp went out. It's a relief to follow something I can see instead of trying to guess which way that beam's going to wiggle next. Lead on, Macduff. I'm right on your tail. The Skylark fell in behind the submersible craft, close enough to keep it plainly visible in the telescopic visiplate. Finally, the stranger stopped and rose to the surface between two rows of submerged pontoons, which, row upon row, extended in every direction as far as the telescope could reach. Well, Dot, we're where we're going, wherever that is. What do you suppose it is? It looks like a floating isle port, like what it told about in that wild story magazine you read so much. Maybe, but if so, they can't be fish, answered Seaton. Let's go. I want to look it over. And water flew in all directions as the Skylark burst out of the ocean and leaped into the air far above what was in truth a floating city. Rectangular in shape, it appeared to be about six miles long and four wide. It was roofed with solar generators, like those covering the island just visited, but the machines were not spaced quite so closely together, and there were numerous open lagoons. The water around the entire city was covered with wave motors. From their great height, the visitors could see an occasional submarine moving slowly under the city, and frequently small surface craft dashed across the lagoons. As they watched, a seaplane with short, thick wings, curved like those of a gull, rose from one of the lagoons and shot away over the water. Quite a place, remarked Seaton, as he swung a visiplate upon one of the lagoons. Submarines, speedboats, and fast seaplanes. Fish or not, they're not so slow. I'm going to grab off one of those folks and see how much they know. Wonder if they're peaceable or warlike. They look peaceable, but you know the proverb, Crane cautioned his impetuous friend. Yes, and I'm going to be timid like a mice, Seaton returned, as the Skylark dropped rapidly toward a lagoon near the edge of the island. You ought to put that in a gag book, Dick, Dorothy chuckled. You forget about being timid until an hour afterwards. Watch me, Red Top. If they even point a finger at us, I'm going to run a million miles a minute. No hostile demonstration was made, as they dropped lower and lower, however, and Seaton, with one hand upon the switch actuating the zone of force, slowly lowered the vessel down past the reflectors and to the surface of the water. Through the visiplate, he saw the crowd of people coming toward them, some swimming in the lagoon, some walking along narrow runways. They seemed to be of all sizes and unarmed. I believe they're perfectly peaceable, just curious, Mart. I've already got the repellers on close range. Believe I'll cut them off altogether. How about the ray screens? 
All three full out. They don't interfere with anything solid, though, and won't hurt anything. They'll stop any ray attack, and this Arnak hull will stop anything else we're apt to get there. Watch this board, will you? And I'll see if I can't negotiate with them. Seaton opened the door. As he did so, a number of smaller beings dived headlong into the water, and a submarine rose quietly to the surface less than fifty feet away, with a peculiar tubular weapon and a huge ray generator trained upon the Skylark. Seaton stood motionless, his right hand raised in the universal sign of peace, his left holding at his hip an automatic pistol charged with explosive shells. While Crane at the controls had the Fenachrone super generator in line, and his hand lay upon the switch, whose closing would volatize the submarine and cut an incandescent path of destruction through the city lengthwise. After a moment of inaction, a hatch opened, a man stepped out upon the deck of the submarine, and the two tried to converse, but with no success. Seaton then brought out the mechanical educator, held it up for the other's inspection, and waved an invitation to come aboard. Instantly, the other dived and came to the surface immediately below Seaton, who assisted him into the Skylark. Tall and heavy as Seaton was, the stranger was half a head taller and almost twice as heavy. His thick skin was of the characteristic Osnomian green, and his eyes were the usual black, but he had no hair whatever. His shoulders, though broad and enormously strong, were very sloping, and his powerful arms were little more than half as long as would have been expected had they belonged to a human being of his size. The hands and feet were very large and very broad, and the fingers and toes were heavily webbed. His high-domed forehead appeared even higher because of the total lack of hair. Otherwise his features were regular and well-proportioned. He carried himself easily and gracefully, and yet with the dignity of one accustomed to command as he stepped into the control room and saluted gravely the three other earth beings. He glanced quickly around the room and showed unmistakable pleasure as he saw the power plant of the cruiser of space. Languages were soon exchanged, and the stranger spoke in a bass voice vastly deeper than Seaton's own. In the name of our city and planet, I may say in the name of our solar system, for you are evidently from one other than our green system, I greet you. I would offer you refreshment, as is our custom, but I fear that your chemistry is but ill-adapted to our customary fare. If there be aught in which we can be of assistance to you, our resources are at your disposal. But before you leave us, I shall wish to ask from you a great gift. Sir, we thank you. We are in search of knowledge concerning forces which we cannot as yet control. From the power systems you employ, and from what I have learned of the composition of your suns and planets, I assume you have none of the metal of power, and it is a quantity of that element that is your greatest need. Yes, power is our only lack. We generate all we can with the materials and knowledge at our disposal, but we never have enough. Our development is hindered. Our birth rate must be held down to a minimum, 
Many new cities which we need cannot be built, and many new projects cannot be started, all for lack of power. For one gram of that metal I see plated upon that copper cylinder, of whose very existence no scientist upon Dasor has had even an inkling, we would do anything. In fact, if all else failed, I would be tempted to attack you did I not know that our utmost power could not penetrate even your outer screen, and that you could volatilize the entire planet if you so desired. Great cat! In his surprise, Seaton lasped from the formal language he had been employing. Have you figured us all out already, from a standing start? We know electricity, chemistry, physics, and mathematics fairly well. You see, our race is many millions of years older than is yours. You're the man I've been looking for, I guess, said Seaton. We have enough of this metal with us so that we can spare you some, as well as not. But before you get it, I'll introduce you. Folks, this is Sackner Carfon, chief of the council of the planet Dasor. They saw us all the time, and when we headed for this, the sixth city, he came over from the capital, or first city, in the flagship of his police fleet, to welcome us, or to fight us, as we pleased. Carfon, this is Martin Crane, or say, better than introductions, put on the headsets, everybody, and get acquainted right. Acquaintance made, and the apparatus put away, Seaton went to one of the storerooms and brought out a lump of X, weighing about a hundred pounds. There's enough to build power plants from now on. It will save time if you were to dismiss your submarine. With you to pilot us, we can take you back to the first city a lot faster than your vessel can travel. Carfon took a miniature transmitter from a pouch under his arm and spoke briefly, then gave Seaton the course. In a few minutes, the first city was reached, and the Skylark descended rapidly to the surface of a lagoon at one end of the city. Short as had been the time consumed by their journey from the sixth city, they found a curious and excited crowd awaiting them. The central portion of the lagoon was almost covered by small surface craft, while the sides, separated from the sidewalks by the curbs, were full of swimmers. The peculiar Dasorian equivalent of whistles, bells, and gongs were making a deafening uproar, and the crowd was yelling and cheering in much the same fashion as do earthly crowds upon similar occasions. Seaton stopped the Skylark, took his wife by the shoulder, swinging her around in front of the visiplate. Look at that, Dot. Talk about rapid transit. They could give the New York subway a flying start and beat them hands down. Dorothy looked into the visiplate and gasped. Six metal pipes, one above the other, ran above and parallel to each sidewalk lane of water. The pipes were full of ocean water, water racing along at fully fifty miles an hour and discharging each stream a small waterfall into the lagoon. Each pipe was lighted in the interior, and each was full of people, heads almost touching feet, unconcernedly being borne along, completely immersed in that mad current. As the passenger saw daylight and felt the stream begin to drop, he righted himself, apparently 
selecting an objective point, and rode the current down into the ocean. A few quick strokes, and he was either at the surface or upon one of the flights of stairs leading up to the platform. Many of the travelers did not even move as they left the orifice. If they happened to be on their backs, they entered the ocean backwards and did not bother about riding themselves or about selecting a destination until they were many feet below the surface. Good heavens, Dick, they'll kill themselves or drown. Not these birds. Notice their skin. They've got a hide like a walrus and a terrific layer of subcutaneous fat. Even their heads are protected that way. You could hardly hit one of them enough with a baseball bat to hurt him. As for drowning, they can outswim a fish and can stay underwater almost an hour without coming up for air. Even one of those youngsters can swim the full length of the city without taking a breath. How do you get that velocity of flow, Carfin? asked Crane. By means of pumps. These channels run all over the city, and the amount of water running in each tube and the number of tubes in use are regulated automatically by the amount of traffic. When any section of tube is empty of people, no water flows through it. This was necessary in order to save power. At each intersection there are four standpipes and automatic swim counters that regulate the volume of water and the number of tubes in use. This is ordinarily a quiet pool, as it is in a residence section. And this channel, our channels correspond to your streets, you know, has only six tubes each way. If you will look on the other side of the channel, you will see the intake end of the tubes going downtown. Seaton swung the visiplate around, and they saw six rapidly moving stairways, each crowded with people, leading from the ocean level up to the top of a tall metal tower. As the passengers reached the top of the flight, they were catapulted headfirst into the chamber, leading to the tube below. "'Well, that is some system for handling people,' exclaimed Seaton. "'What's the capacity of the system?' "'When running full pressure, six tubes will handle five thousand people a minute. It is only very rarely, on such occasions as this, that they are ever loaded to capacity. Some of the channels in the middle of the city have as many as twenty tubes, so that it is always possible to go from one end of the city to the other in less than ten minutes. "'Don't they ever jam?' asked Dorothy curiously. "'I've been lost more than once in the New York subway and been in some perfectly frightful jams, too, and they weren't moving ten thousand people a minute, either.' No jams have ever occurred. The tubes are perfectly smooth and well-lighted, and all turns and intersections are rounded. The controlling machine allows only so many persons to enter any tube. If more should try to enter that can be carried comfortably, the surplus passengers are slid off down a chute to the swimways or sidewalks, and may either wait a while or swim to the next intersection. That looks like quite a jam down there now. Seaton pointed to the receiving pool, which was now one solid mass except for the space kept clear by the six mighty streams of humanity-laden water. If the newcomers can't find room to come to the surface, they'll swim over to some other pool, Carfin shrugged indifferently. 
My residence is the fifth cubicle on the right side of this channel. Our custom demands that you accept the hospitality of my home, if only for a moment, and only for a beaker of distilled water. An ordinary visitor could be received in my office, but you must enter my home. Seaton steered the Skylark, carefully surrounded as she was by a tightly packed crowd of swimmers, to the indicated dwelling and anchored her, so that one of the doors was close to a flight of steps leading from the corner of the building down into the water. Carfon stepped out, opened the door of his house, and preceded his guests within. The room was large and square, and built of synthetic, non-corroding metal, as was the entire city. The walls were tastefully decorated with striking geometrical designs in many-colored metal, and upon the floor was a softly woven rug. Three doors leading into other rooms could be seen, and strange pieces of furniture stood here and there. In the center of the floor space was a circular opening some four feet in diameter, and there, only a few inches below the level of the floor, was the surface of the ocean. Carfon introduced his guest to his wife, a feminine replica of himself, although she was not of quite such heroic proportions. "'I don't suppose that Seven is far away, is he?' Carfon asked of the woman. "'Probably he is outside, near the flying ball. If he has not been touching it ever since it came down, it is only because someone stronger than he pushed him aside. You know how boys are,' turning to Dorothy, with a smile as she spoke. "'Boy nature is probably universal.' "'Pardon my curiosity, but why seven? asked Dorothy, as she returned the smile. "'He is the two-thousandth, three-hundred-and-forty-seventh, Sacknir Carfon, in the direct male line of descent,' she explained. "'But perhaps six has not explained these things to you. Our population must not be allowed to increase. Therefore, each couple can have only two children. It is customary for the boy to be born first and is given the name of his father. The girl is younger, and is given her mother's name. "'That will now be changed,' said Carfon feelingly. "'These visitors have given us the secret of power, and we shall be able to build new cities and populate Dasor as she should be populated.' "'Really?' She checked herself, but a flame leaped to her eyes, and her voice was none too steady, as she addressed the visitors. For that, we Desorians thank you more than words can express. Perhaps you strangers do not know what it means to want a dozen children with every fiber of your being, and to be allowed to have only two. We do, all too well. I will call seven. She pressed a button, and up out of the opening in the middle of the floor there shot a half-grown boy, swimming so rapidly that he scarcely touched the combing as he came to his feet. He glanced at the four visitors, then ran up to Seaton and Crane. "'Please, sir, may I ride just a little short ride in your vessel before you go away?' This was said in their language. Seven boomed Carfin sternly, and the exuberant youth subsided. "'Pardon me, sirs, I was so excited.' All right, son, no harm done at all. You bet you'll have a ride in the Skylark, 
if your parents will let you. He turned to Carfon. I'm not so far beyond that stage myself that I'm not in sympathy with him. Neither are you, unless I'm badly mistaken. I am very glad that you feel as you do. He would be delighted to accompany us down to the office, and it will be something to remember all the rest of his life. You have a little girl, too? Dorothy asked the woman. Yes, would you like to see her? She is asleep now. And without waiting for an answer, the proud Dasorian mother led the way into a bedroom, a bedroom without beds, for Dasorians sleep floating in thermostatically controlled tanks, buoyed up in water of the temperature they like best, in a fashion that no earthly springs and mattresses can approach. In a small tank in a corner reposed a baby, apparently about a year old, over whom Dorothy and Margaret made the usual feminine ceremony of delight and approbation. Back in the living room, after an animated conversation in which much information was exchanged concerning the two planets and their races of peoples, Carfon drew six metal goblets of distilled water and passed them around. Standing in a circle, the six touched goblets and drank. Then they embarked, and while Crane steered the Skylark slowly along the channel toward the offices of the Council, and while Dorothy and Margaret showed the eager seven all over the vessel, Seaton explained to Carfon the danger that threatened the universe, what he had done, and what he was attempting to do. Dr. Seaton, I wish to apologize to you, the Dasorian said when Seaton had done. Since you are evidently still land animals, I had supposed you of inferior intelligence. It is true that your younger civilization is deficient in certain respects, but you have shown a depth of vision, a sheer power of imagination, and grasp that no member of our older civilization could approach. I believe that you are right in your conclusions. We have no such rays nor forces upon this planet, and never have had, but the sixth planet of our own sun has. Less than fifty of your years ago, when I was but a small boy, such a projection visited my father. It offered to rescue us from our watery planet, and to show us how to build rocket ships to move us to three, which is half land, inhabited by lower animals. And he didn't accept? Certainly not. Then as now, our sole lack was power, and the strangers did not show us how to increase our supply. Perhaps they had more power than we. Perhaps, because of the difficulty of communication, our want was not made clear to them. But, of course, we did not want to move to three, and we had already had rocket ships for hundreds of generations. We have never been able to reach six with them, but we visited three long ago, and everyone who went there came back as soon as he could. We detest land. It is hard, barren, unfriendly. We have everything here on Dasor. Food is plentiful, synthetic or natural, as we prefer. Our watery planet supplies our every need and wish, with one exception. And now that we are assured of power, even that one exception vanishes, and Dasor becomes a very paradise. We can now lead our natural lives, work and play to our fullest capacity. We would not trade our world 
for all the rest of the universe. I never thought of it in that way, but you're right at that, Seaton conceded. You are ideally suited to your environment. But how do I get to planet six? Its distance is terrific, even as cosmic distances go. You won't have any night until Dassar swings outside the orbit of your sun, and until then, six will be invisible, even to our most powerful telescope. I do not know myself, answered Carfon, but I will send out a call for the chief astronomer. He will meet us and give you a chart and the exact course. At the office, the earthly visitors were welcomed formally by the council, the nine men in control of the entire planet. The ceremony over, and their course carefully plotted, Carfon stood at the door of the Skylark, a moment before it closed. We thank you with all force, Earthmen, for what you have done for us this day. Please remember, and believe that this is no idle word. If we can assist you in any way in this conflict which is to come, the resources of this planet are at your disposal. We join Osnome and the other planets of this system in declaring you, Dr. Seaton, our overlord. End of Chapter 8 Norlaminian Science Breakfast over, Seaton watched intently, as his tray, laden with empty containers, floated away from him and disappeared into an opening in the wall. "'How do you do it, Orlon?' he asked curiously. "'I can hardly believe it, even after seeing it done.' "'Each tray is carried upon the end of a beam or rod of force, and supported rigidly by it. Since the beam is tuned to the individual wave of the instrument you wear upon your chest, your tray is, of course, placed in front of you, at a predetermined distance, as soon as the sending force is actuated. When you have finished your meal, the beam is shortened. Thus, the tray is drawn back to the food laboratory, where other forces cleanse and sterilize the various utensils and place them in readiness for the next meal. It would be an easy matter to have this same mechanism place your meals before you wherever you might go upon this planet, provided only that a clear path can be plotted from the laboratory to your person. Thanks, but it wouldn't pay. No telling where we'd be. Besides, we'd better eat in the Skylark most of the time to keep our cook good-natured. Well, I see Roval's got his boat here for me, so guess I'd better turn up a few RPMs. Come in along, Dot, or have you got something else on your mind? I'm going to leave you for a while. I can't really understand even a radio, and just thinking about those funny, complicated rays and things you are going after makes me dizzy in the head. Mrs. Orlon is going to take us over to the country of youth. She says Margaret and I can play around with her daughter and her bunch and have a good time while you scientists are doing your stuff. All right. Bye till tonight and Seaton stepped out into the grounds, where the first of rays was waiting. The flyer was a torpedo-shaped craft of some transparent glassy material, completely enclosed except for one circular opening or doorway. From the midsection, which was about five feet in diameter, and provided with heavily cushioned seats 
capable of carrying four passengers in comfort, the hull tapered down smoothly to a needle point at each end. As Seaton entered and settled himself into the cushions, Roval touched a lever. Instantly, a transparent door slid across the opening, locking itself into position, flush with the surface of the hull, and the flyer darted into the air and away. For a few minutes there was silence, as Seaton studied the terrain beneath them. Fields or cities, there were none. The land was covered with dense forests and vast meadows. With here and there great buildings surrounded by gracious park-like areas. Roval finally broke the silence. I understand your problem, I believe, since Orlan has transferred to me all the thoughts he had from you. With the aid of the Rovalon you have brought us, I am confident that we shall be able to work out a satisfactory solution of the various problems involved. It will take us some few minutes to traverse the distance to my laboratory, and if there are any matters upon which your mind is not quite clear, I shall try to clarify them. That's letting me down easy, Seaton grinned, but you don't need to be afraid of hurting my feelings. I know just exactly how ignorant and dumb I am compared to you. There are a lot of things I don't get at first. First and nearest, this airboat. It has no power plant at all. I assume that it, like so many other things hereabouts, is riding on the end of a rod of force. Exactly. The beam is generated and maintained in my laboratory. All that is here in the flyer is a small sender for remote control. How do you obtain your power? asked Seaton. Solar generators and tide motors? I know that all your work is done by proto-electricity, but Orlan did not inform us as to the sources. We have not used such inefficient generators for many thousands of years. Long ago it was shown by research that these rays were constantly being generated in abundance in outer space, and that they could be collected upon spherical condensers and transmitted without loss to the surface of the planet by means of matched and synchronized crystals. Several millions of these condensers have been built and thrown out to become tidy satellites of Normalin. How did you get them far enough out? The first ones were forced out to the required distance by beams of force produced by the conversion of electricity, which was in turn produced from turbines solar motors and tide motors. With a few of them out, however, it was easy to obtain sufficient power to send out more, and now, whenever one of us requires more power than he has at his disposal, he merely sends out such additional collectors as he needs. Now about those fifth-order rays, which will penetrate a zone of force. I am told that they are not ether waves after all. They are not ether waves. The fourth-order rays, of which the theory has been completely worked out, are the shortest vibrations that can be propagated through the ether. For the ether itself is not a continuous medium. We do not know its nature exactly, but it is an actual substance, and is composed of discrete particles of the fourth order. Now the zone of force, which is itself a fourth-order phenomenon, sets up a condition of stasis in the particles composing the ether. 
These particles are relatively so coarse that rays and particles of the fifth order will pass through the fixed zone without retardation. Therefore, if there is anything between the particles of the ether, this matter is being debated hotly amongst us at the present time, it must be subether, if I may use that term. We have never been able to investigate any of these things experimentally, not even such a coarse aggregation as is the ether. But now, having Rovalon, it will not be many thousands of years until we shall have extended our knowledge many orders farther in both directions. Just how will Rovalon help you? It will enable us to generate a force of the ninth magnitude. That much power is necessary to set up what you have so aptly named a zone of force, and will give us a source of fourth, fifth, and probably higher orders of rays, which, if they are generated in space at all, are beyond our present reach. The zone of force is necessary to shield certain items of equipment from ether vibrations, as any such vibration inside the controlling fields of force renders observation or control of the higher orders of rays impossible. Hmm, I see. I'm learning something, Seaton replied cordially. Just as the higher powered a radio set is, the more perfect must be its shielding. Yes, just a trace of any gas will destroy the usefulness of your most sensitive vacuum tubes. And, just as imperfect shielding will allow interfering waves to enter sensitive electrical apparatus, in that same fashion will even the slightest ether vibration interfere with the operation of the extremely sensitive fields and lenses of force, which must be used in controlling forces of the higher orders. You haven't tested the theory of the fourth order yet, have you? No, but that is unnecessary. The theory of the fourth order is not really theory at all. It is mathematical fact. Although we have never been able to generate them, we know exactly the forces you use in your ship of space, and we can tell you of some thousands of others more or less similar and also highly useful forces, which you have not yet discovered, but are allowing to go to waste. We know exactly what they are, how to liberate and control them, and how to use them. In fact, in the work which we are to begin today, we shall use but little ordinary power. Almost all our work will be done by fourth-order forces, liberated from copper by means of the Rovalon you have given me. But here we are at my laboratory. You already know that the best way to learn is by doing, and we shall begin at once. The flyer alighted upon a lawn quite similar to the one before the observatory of Orlon, and the scientist led his earthly guest through the main entrance of the imposing structure of vari-colored marble and gleaming metal, and into the vast, glass-lined room that was his laboratory. Great benches lined the walls, and there were hundreds of dials, meters, tubes, transformers, and other instruments whose uses Seaton could not even guess. Roval first donned a suit of transparent, flexible material of a deep golden color, instructing Seaton to do the same, explaining that much of the work would be with dangerous frequencies and with high pressures, 
and that the suits were not only absolute insulators against electricity, heat, and sound, but were also ray filters proof against any harmful radiation. As each helmet was equipped with radio phones, conversation was not interfered with in the least. Roval took up a tiny flash pencil, and with it deftly cut off a bit of Rovalon, almost microscopic in size. This he placed upon a great block of burnished copper, and upon it played a force. As he manipulated two levers, two more beams of force flattened out the particle of metal, spread it out over the copper, and forced it into the surface of the block until the thin coating was at every point in molecular contact with the copper beneath it. A perfect job of plating, and one done in the twinkling of an eye. He then cut out a piece of the treated copper the size of a pea, and other forces rapidly built around its structure of coils and metallic tubes. This apparatus he suspended in the air at the extremity of a small beam of force. The block of copper was next cut in two, and Roval's fingers moved rapidly over the keys of a machine which resembled slightly an overgrown and exceedingly complicated bookkeeping machine. Streams and pencils of force flashed and crackled, and Seaton saw raw materials transformed into a complete power plant. In its center, the 200-pound lump of plated copper, where an instant before there had been only empty space upon the massive metal bench. Roval's hands moved rapidly from keys to dials and back, and suddenly a zone of force as large as a basketball appeared around the apparatus poised in the air. But it will fly off and we can't stop it with anything, Seaton protested, and it did indeed dart rapidly upward. The old man shook his head as he manipulated still more controls, and Seaton gasped as nine stupendous beams of force hurled themselves upon that brilliant spherical mirror of pure energy, seized it in mid-flight, and shaped it resistlessly under his bulging eyes into a complex geometrical figure of precisely the desired form. Lurid violet light filled the room, and Seaton turned towards the bar. That two-hundred-pound mass of copper was shrinking visibly, second by second, so vast were the forces being drawn from it, and the searing, blinding light would have been intolerable but for the protective color filters of his helmet. Tremendous flashes of lightning ripped and tore from the relief points of the bench to the ground rods, which flared at blue-white temperatures under the incessant impacts. Knowing that this corona loss was but an infinitesimal fraction of the power being used, Seaton's very mind staggered as he strove to understand the magnitude of the forces at work upon that stubborn sphere of energy. The aged scientist used no tools whatever, as we understand the term. His laboratory was a powerhouse. At his command were the stupendous forces of a battery of planetoid accumulators, and added to these were the fourth-order, ninth-magnitude forces of the disintegrating copper bar. Electricity, protoelectricity, and fourth-order rays under millions upon millions of kilovolts of pressure 
leaped to do the bidding of that wonderful brain, stored with the accumulated knowledge of countless thousands of years of scientific research. Watching the ancient physicists worked, Seaton compared himself to a schoolboy, mixing chemicals indiscriminately and ignorantly, with no knowledge whatever of their properties, occasionally obtaining a reaction by pure chance. Whereas he had worked with intra-atomic energy, schoolboy fashion, the master craftsman before him, knew every reagent, every reaction, and worked with known and thoroughly familiar agencies to bring about his exact predetermined ends, just as calmly certain of the results as Seaton himself would have been in his own laboratory, mixing equivalent quantities of solution of barium chloride and of sulfuric acid to obtain a precipitate of barium sulfate. Hour after hour, Rovol labored on, oblivious to the passage of time in his zeal of accomplishment, the while carefully instructing Seaton, who watched every step with intense interest and did everything possible for him to do. Bit by bit, a towering structure arose in the middle of the laboratory. A metal foundation supported a massive compound bearing, which in turn carried a tubular network of latticed metal, mounted like an immense telescope. Near the upper outer end of this open-work tube, a group of nine forces held the field of force rigidly in place in its axis. At the lower extremity were mounted seats for two operators and the control panels necessary for the operation of the intricate system of forces and motors which would actuate and control that gigantic projector. Immense hour and declination circles could be read by optical systems from the operator's seats. Circles fully forty feet in diameter, graduated with incredible delicacy and accuracy into decimal fractions of seconds of arc, and each driven by variable speed motors through gear trains and connections, having no backlash whatever. While Roval was working upon one of the last instruments to be installed upon the controlling panel, a mellow note sounded throughout the building, and he immediately ceased his labors and opened the master switches of his power plants. "'You've done well, youngster,' he congratulated his helper, as he began to take off his protective covering. "'Without your aid, I could not have accomplished nearly this much during one period of labor. The periods of exercise and of relaxation are at hand, and let us return to the house of Orlon, where we shall gather to relax and to refresh ourselves for the labors of tomorrow. But it's almost done, protested Seaton. Let's finish it up and shoot a little juice through it, just to try it out. There speaks the rashness and impatience of youth, rejoined the scientist, calmly removing the younger man's suit and leading him out to the waiting airboat. I read in your mind that you're often guilty of laboring continuously until your brain loses its keen edge. Learn now, once and for all, that such conduct is worse than foolish. It is criminal. We have labored the full period. Laboring for more than that length of time without recuperation results in a loss of power, which, if persisted in, wrecks permanent injury to the mind, and by it you gain nothing.' 
We have more than ample time to do that which must be done. The fifth order projector shall be completed before the warning torpedo shall have reached the planet of Fenachrone. Therefore, overexertion is unwarranted. As for testing, know now that only mechanisms built by bunglers require testing. Properly built machines work properly. But I'd like to see it work just once anyway, lamented Seaton, as the small airship tore through the air on its way back to the observatory. You must cultivate calmness, my son, and the art of relaxation. With those qualities, your race can easily double its present span of useful life. Physical exercise to maintain the bodily tissues at their best, and mental relaxation following mental toil, these things are the secrets of a long and productive life. Why attempt to do more than can be accomplished efficiently? There is always tomorrow. I am more interested in that which we are now building than you can possibly be, since many generations of the Roval have anticipated its construction. Yet I realize that in the interest of our welfare and the progress of civilization, today's labors must not be prolonged beyond today's period of work. Furthermore, you yourself realize that there is no optimum point at which any task may be interrupted. Short of final completion of any project, one point is the same as any other. Had we continued, we would have wished to continue still farther, and so on, without end. You're probably right at that, the impetuous chemist conceded, as their craft came to Earth before the observatory. Crane and Orlon were already in the common room, as were the scientists Seaton already knew, as well as a group of women and children still strangers to the terrestrials. In a few minutes, Orlon's companion, a dignified white-haired woman, entered, accompanied by Dorothy, Margaret, and a laughing, boisterous group of men and women from the country of youth. Introductions over, Seaton turned to Crane. How's every little thing, Mart? Very well indeed. We are building an observatory in space, or rather, Orlon is building it, and I am doing what little I can to help him. In a few days, we shall be able to locate the system of the Fenachrone. How is your work progressing? Smoother than a kitten's ear. Got the fourth-order projector about done. We're going to project the fourth-order force out to grab us some dense material, a pretty close approach to pure neutronium. There's nothing dense enough around here, even in the core of the central sun. So we're going out to a white dwarf star, one a good deal like the companion star, to Sirius, in Canis Major. Get some material of the proper density from its core and convert our sender into a fifth-order machine. Then we can really get busy, go places, and do things. Neutronium? Pure mass? queried Crane. I have been under the impression that it does not exist. Of what use can such a substance be to you? Can't get pure neutronium, of course. Couldn't use it if we could. What we need and are going to get is a material of about two and a half million specific gravity. Gotta have it for lenses and controls, 
for the fifth-order forces. Those rays go right through anything less dense without measurable refraction. But I see Roval's giving me a nasty look. He's my boss on this job, and I imagine this kind of talk's barred during the period of relaxation as being work. That's so, Chief? You know that it is barred, you incorrigible young cub, answered Roval with a smile. All right, boss. One more little infraction, and I'll shut up like a clam. I'd like to know what the girls have been doing. We've been having a wonderful time, Dorothy declared. We've been designing fabrics and ornaments and jewels and things. Wait till you see them. Fine. All right. Orlon, it's your party. What to do? This is the time of exercise. We have many forms, most of which are unfamiliar to you. You all swim, however, and as that is one of the best exercises, I suggest we all swim. Lead us to it, Seaton exclaimed. Then his voice changed abruptly. Wait a minute. I don't know about our swimming in copper sulfate solution. We swim in fresh water as often as in salt, and the pool is now filled with distilled water. The terrestrials quickly donned their bathing suits, and all went through the observatory and down a winding path, bordered with that peculiarly beautiful scarlet and green shrubbery, to the pool, an artificial lake covering a hundred acres, its polished metal bottom and sides strikingly decorated with jewels and glittering tiles in tasteful yet contrasting inlaid designs. Any desired depth of water was available and plainly marked. From the fenced-off shallows where the smallest children splashed to the forty feet of liquid crystal, which received the diver who cared to try his skill from one of the many springboards, flying rings, and catapults, which rose high into the air a short distance away from the entrance. Orlon and the others of the older generation plunged into the water without ado and struck out for the other shore, using a fast double overarm stroke. Swimming in a wide circle, they came out upon the apparatus and went through a series of methodical dives and gymnastic performances. It was evident that they swam, as Orlon had intimated, for exercise. To them, exercise was a necessary form of labor, labor which they performed thoroughly and well, but nothing to call forth the whole-souled enthusiasm they displayed in their chosen fields of mental effort. The visitors from the country of youth, however, locked arms and sprang to surround the four terrestrials, crying, Let's do a group dive. I don't believe I can swim well enough to enjoy what's coming, whispered Margaret to Crane, and they slipped into the pool and turned around to watch. Seaton and Dorothy, both strong swimmers, locked arms and laughed as they were encircled by the green phalanx and swept out to the end of a dock-like structure and upon a catapult. Hold tight, everybody, someone yelled, and interlaced straining arms and legs held the green and white bodies in one motionless group as a gigantic force hurled them fifty feet into the air and out over the deepest part of the pool. There was a mighty splash and a miniature tidal wave as that mass of humanity struck the water. Many feet they went down before the cordon was broken 
and the individual units came to the surface. Then pandemonium reigned. Vigorous informal games, having to do with floating and sinking balls and effigies, pushball, in which the players never seemed to know or to care upon which side they were playing, water fights and dunking contests, a green mermaid, having felt the incredible power of Seaton's arms as he tossed her lightly away from a goal he was temporarily defending, put both her small hands around his biceps, wonderingly amazed at a strength unknown and impossible upon her world, then playfully tried to push him under. Failing, she called for help. "'He's needed a good ducking for ages,' Dorothy cried, and she and several other girls threw themselves upon him. Over and around him the lithe forms flashed, while the rest of the young people splashed water impartially over all the combatants and cheered them on. In the midst of the battle, the signal sounded to end the period of exercise. "'Saved by the bell,' Seaton laughed, thoroughly ducked and almost half-drowned, he was allowed to swim ashore. When all had returned to the common room of the observatory and had seated themselves, Orlon took out his miniature ray projector, no larger than a fountain pen, and flashed it briefly upon one of the hundreds of button-like lenses upon the wall. Instantly, each chair converted itself into a form-fitting divan, inviting complete repose. I believe that you of Earth would perhaps enjoy some of our music during this, the period of relaxation and repose. It is so different from your own, Orlon remarked, as he again manipulated his tiny force tube. Every light was extinguished, and there was felt a profoundly deep vibration, a note so low as to be palpable rather than audible, and simultaneously the utter darkness was relieved by a tinge of red so dark as to be barely perceptible, while a peculiar somber fragrance pervaded the atmosphere. The music rapidly ran the gamut to the limit of audibility, and in the same tempo the lights traversed the visible spectrum and disappeared. Then came a crashing chord and a vivid flare of blended light, ushering in an indescribable symphony of sound and color accompanied by a slower succession of shifting, blending odors. The quality of tone was now that of a gigantic orchestra, now that of a full brass band, now that of a single unknown instrument, as though the composer had had at his command every overtone capable of being produced by any possible instrument, and with them had woven a veritable tapestry of melody upon an incredibly complex loom of sound. As went the harmony, so the play of light accompanied it. Neither music nor illumination came from any apparent source. They simply pervaded the entire room. When the music was fast, and certain passages were of a rapidity impossible for any human fingers to attain, the lights flashed in vivid, tiny pencils, intersecting each other in sharply drawn, brilliant figures, which changed with dizzying speed. When the temple was slow, the beams were soft and broad, blending into each other 
to form sinuous, indefinite, writhing patterns, whose very vagueness was infinitely soothing. "'What do you think of it, Mrs. Seaton?' Orlon asked. "'Marvelous,' breathed Dorothy, awed. "'I never imagined anything like it. I can't begin to tell you how much I like it. I never dreamed of such absolute perfection of execution, and the way the lighting accompanies the theme is just too perfectly wonderful for words. It was incredibly brilliant. Brilliant, yes. Perfectly executed, yes. But I notice that you say nothing of depth of feeling or of emotional appeal. Dorothy blushed uncomfortably and started to say something, but Orlon silenced her and continued, You need not apologize. I had a reason for speaking as I did, for in you I recognize a real musician, and our music is indeed entirely soulless. That is the result of our ancient civilization. We are so old that our music is purely intellectual, entirely mechanical, instead of emotional. It is perfect, but, like most of our other arts, it is almost completely without feeling. But your statues are wonderful. As I told you, those statues were made myriads of years ago. At that time, we also had real music, but unlike statuary, music at that time could not be preserved for posterity. That is another thing you have given us. Attend. At one end of the room, as upon a three-dimensional screen, the four terrestrials saw themselves seated in the control room of the Skylark. They saw and heard Margaret take up her guitar and strike four sonorous chords in A. Then, as if they had been there in person, they heard themselves sing the Bullfrog and all the other songs they had sung far off in space. They heard Margaret suggest that Dorothy play some real music and heard Seton's comment upon the quartet. In that youngster, you were entirely wrong, said Orlon, stopping the reproduction for a moment. The entire planet was listening to you very attentively, and we were enjoying it as no music has been enjoyed for thousands of years. The whole planet? gasped Margaret. Were you broadcasting it? How could you? Easy, grinned Seaton. They can do almost anything with these rays of theirs. When you have time in some period of labor, we would appreciate it very much if you four would sing for us again, would give us more of your vast store of youthful music, for we can now preserve it exactly as it is sung. But much as we enjoy the quartet, Miss Seaton, it was your work upon the violin that took us by storm. Beginning with tomorrow, my companion intends to have you spend as many periods as you will playing for our records. We shall now have your music. If you like it so well, would you rather I'd play you something I hadn't played before? That is labor. We could not. Fa, Dorothy interrupted. Don't you see that I could really play right now with somebody to listen who really enjoys music, whereas if I tried to play in front of a record, I'd be perfectly mechanical. At a girl, Dot. I'll get your fiddle. Keep your seat, son, instructed Orlon, as the case containing the Stradivarius appeared before Dorothy, 
borne by a pencil of force. While that temperament is incomprehensible to every one of us, it is undoubtedly true that the artistic mind does work in that manner. We listen. Dorothy swept into the melody in F, and as the poignantly beautiful strains poured forth from that wonderful violin, she knew that she had her audience with her. Though so intellectual that they themselves were incapable of producing music of real depth of feeling, they could understand and could enjoy such music with an appreciation impossible to a people of lesser mental attainments. And their profound enjoyment of her playing, burned into her mind by the telepathic, almost hypnotic power of the Normalian mentality, raised her to heights of power she had never before attained. Playing as one inspired, she went through one tremendous solo after another, holding her listeners spellbound, urged on by their intense feeling to carry them further and even further into the realm of pure emotional harmony. The bell which ordinarily signaled the end of the period of relaxation did not sound. For the first time in thousands of years, the planet of Normalin deserted its rigid schedule of life to listen to one earth woman, pouring out her very soul upon her incomparable violin. The final note of memories died away in a diminuendo wail, and the musician almost collapsed into Seaton's arms. The profound silence, more impressive far than any possible applause, was soon broken by Dorothy. There, I'm all right now, Dick. I was about out of control for a minute. I wish they could have had that on a recorder. I'll never be able to play like that again if I live to be a thousand years old. It is on record, daughter. Every note and every inflection is preserved precisely as you played it, Orlon assured her. That is our only excuse for allowing you to continue as you did, almost to the point of exhaustion. While we cannot really understand an artistic mind of the peculiar type to which yours belongs, we realize that each time you play, you are doing something that no one, not even yourself, can ever do again in precisely the same subtle fashion. Therefore we allowed, in fact encouraged you, to go on as long as that creative impulse should endure, not merely for our pleasure in hearing it, great though that pleasure was, but in the hope that our workers in music could, by careful analysis of your product, determine quantitatively the exact vibrations or overtones which make the difference between emotional and intellectual music. End of chapter 10